After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense and his clear, open heart. In order to continue presenting these podcasts, we need your support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack and you can donate there or you can go through our Amazon or Audible affiliate links. And that's another great way to support the podcast. Thank you for your generous attention. Hi, this is Raghu Marcus from the MindPod Network. And I just wanted to introduce this next podcast from Jack Cornfield. And the reason for that, it's two-part. This is like a magical mystery tour a little bit. You see, we have our buddy Duncan Trussell, who we call our podcast guru. He gets together with Jack every once in a while out in the wilds of Los Angeles. And uh, they do a couple of, they did just recently a couple of podcasts that are linked. And one of them, part one, is on Duncan Trussell, his family hour. And part two, is what you're going to hear next, which is a continuation. So, in a way, they stand alone, of course. But in another way, once you've listened to this one, you will enjoy going over to Duncan and listening to that other part of the conversation with Jack. So, here we go. This is Jack Cornfield and his Heart Wisdom Hour featuring Duncan Trussell. Jack, thank you so much for coming back on on the show. It's a pleasure, Duncan. It's so great I like to see you. Out with you, it's great. I love hanging out with you. It is mind blowing, uh, literally mind blowing. You are um, uh, one of my teachers. I consider you one of my teachers in this incarnation. I feel I feel I must have really incredible karma that I get to actually have these conversations with you. So, thank you for spending this time with me. Um, and sorry to put that heaviness on you, but. My first question is a very uncomfortable question for me to ask, uh, and and for everyone listening, forgive me if it sounds egotistical or narcissistic, because there's no way for it not to, or like I'm bragging, because I I don't feel comfortable with this at all. But uh, I do these live shows, and at these live shows, after the shows, people come up to me, and, and more than a few... Uh, say things to me. Uh, College students and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, and and, and the, they say things to me like, uh, I think of you as my teacher. Uh, some have even said, you're you're my Ram Dass. And, but you have more hair. <laughs> well, for now, not for long. But when, when, I, when I hear that, I feel like a f- fraud when I hear that. I just feel like a fraud. You've done the work. Ram Dass has done the work. Uh, Sharon Salzberg has done the work. I have not done the work. I think I'm good at talking. I'm really good at parroting people and regurgitating things that I've heard. But I don't feel like uh, like I'm I'm that kind of teacher. I don't feel like that. So let me tell you a story that may be helpful. Um, Bo Lozoff, who started the Prison Ashram Project probably in the 1970s, was a friend of Ram Dass and mine and various other people. 
um, he began to send um, spiritual teachings, be here now, um, instructions for yoga, um, meditation instructions to people behind bars back when that wasn't being done, um, you know, certainly from an Eastern or Buddhist or Hindu perspective. And, and it really fed people because there's the, our insane prison system, which locks up two and a half million people, this huge racist poverty prison system that we have and has eight million people in it is just crazy. Um, that's a whole other conversation, um, yeah. uh, what we can do about it. But anyway, um, and then after he started sending the material, he would correspond with people who were inside, who were using it, and enormous value to them to kind of reclaim their spirit. So they would be like Nelson Mandela. They could walk out of prison with their dignity rather than being broken by it. Yes. And he went to visit this prison, and there was an old man, old African-American guy, um, who said, I just so love your letters and I've been doing my yoga and I've been doing my meditation has changed my life and you are my guru, man. You are my guru. Right. Yeah, Ramdas, Neem Karoli, Baba, whatever. You are my guy. You write to me. You are my guru. And Bo said, I'm not your guru. I am, you know, I'm just giving voice to these teachings from these great teachers like Ramdas and these Indian gurus and yoga teachers that I've met. Yes. And I'm not your guru. And the guy said, look, I've got your picture up here on my altar and you're my guru and he said I'm not I'm sorry to say this and you know I'm glad to be of service and he left and when he got home reflected about it for a while he did not sleep well because he knew in some way in his heart that he had blown it because in fact he was representing those teachings for this man he'd offered them to him um, and until he could take that into himself, not in an egotistical way, because it scared the shit out of him to take it, because he knew how impure and imperfect, yes. you know, imperfect he was. But until he could say, all right, to the best that I'm able, I'll give you what I can, um, he didn't go back into a prison, because that felt even more false. Wow. It's even a bigger falsehood to deny the fact that somehow, even in your weird Duncanness, just like I'm in my weird Jackness, yeah. we are being channeled for channels for something that's bigger than that. Wow. So um, in that way, then there's something beautiful and really difficult that comes to you, Duncan. I'm sorry to tell you the bad news. <laughs> what comes to you is, yes, you are their teacher. And yes, then it brings a responsibility. You're going to have to work your little patooties off and do a bit more practice and become wow. wiser because they're who you're counting on. And it's a beautiful thing. Wow. The teaching really reminds you when you give voice to it that this is what I know and I believe. And then you look and you say, yeah, but shit, I'm not really living it in this and that way. And I think I better, you know, clean up my act a little bit. And so it becomes a mirror and an inspiration for you. Um, and that's true for every good mentor. That's what a mentor, you know, from you go back to the time of the ancient Greeks and the word mentor came from this, from mentor, this being, this man who actually knew how to empower others. Um, and that's part of the role that you step up to it. So sorry about that, dude. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. That's cool. Yeah, that is not the answer I expected. Thank you for that. What did um, you expect? Getting hit over the head, you're such an egotistical, you yeah, know, uh, yeah. radio personality, quote unquote. Yeah, just something like that or just more like be careful or watch out or just some, you know, that's the other thing I love about you and Ram Dass and all the these people that I've come in, in contact with who, 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 are glow, who have this glow is that. That you guys really don't have, you don't hit anybody over the head with anything. Not You're very just... interesting to do that. No, instead of being careful, be big, be generous, be full of love, and you know, grow up in a good way. I mean, stay young in spirit and so yeah. forth. But but let your heart be the place of wisdom and compassion that's that it is. Mm -hmm. um, own it, dance with it, get out there. I'll try. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That uh, I'm going to stammer for a second because my brain is processing what you just said. Good. You are the coolest person. Uh, I uh, I was wondering if it would be possible uh, when I go to these retreats. You know, you've made me cry more than almost anyone I've ever met. 
on earth. Uh, and, and it's these retreats. Uh, you just opened me up. And I remember the, the first time um, in Hawaii, the first time I saw you talk, it was honestly within three minutes of you getting on stage. Uh, I don't know what it is you're doing. It feels to me that you're there's more than what you're doing that's just saying words. It feels like the words are encapsulating a kind of energy that you're putting out. Uh, but these guided meditations that you've led me through are so powerful. And uh, I was wondering if we could do, as strange it is, as it is on a podcast, if we could do a guided meditation for everybody. We could, of course. But I want to say something about the tears Um um, because there are the tears when we feel sorry for ourselves or there's the tears of, you know, regret um, and, you know, loss. Um, there's another kind of tears, which are called the tears of the way with a capital W, mm. like the way, like the Tao or the path or the Dharma. And there's something that happens when you hear something and it resonates with your heart. Somebody's reading a passage from, you know, some beautiful poet or sacred literature or you hear a piece of music you know and you almost could weep because you remember oh my god human incarnation it's tough but god i love it you know and that i love this and it just reminds you you know to awaken and to be here so those are a different kind of tears and and when i when i teach even in the beginning i like to name a whole mandala that invites you hear that those of you who are listening, no matter what your orientation or gender or race or caste or, or, or ability or capacity or age, the Dharma welcomes you. The gate is open to remember the spirit that you carry that was born in this life, um, that's the, your original dignity and beauty that's called your Buddha nature. This is really what we're talking to. And then I'll tell some tear-jerking story that's really sad about, you know, someone who learned this and then was sitting with this close friend who was dying, you know, and holding their hand and everybody else is freaking out and they're just looking each other's eyes and saying, wow, what an amazing ride this was. I'm so glad we got to love each other mm -hmm. in this and in, in this time. What a gift it was. Or, or um, so I invite emotions and I say, how does your body feel as you listen to this? you know, and let yourself come back to yourself. And all of a sudden, the body and the feelings and the mind and the vision and really the heart or the spirit are all invited to the table. And then you go, oh, yeah, I'm home. Here we are. I'm here in the reality of the present. When Ramdas wrote the book, Be Here Now, he said it in those three incredibly simple words, you know, of three and four letters, to live in the timeless present, because there's no other place. Mm. And yes, we can think about past and future and planet, but where we are is now, and who we are is now. And we get to start over and over each moment. And so the invitation is to come into the timeless reality of the present. Now you want some kind of meditation or something? What do you want? Exactly? We don't have to do. I, 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 you know, I no. I just. I, are they driving? I mean, I can't have. Them oh close yeah, their these eyes, people right? are probably at work. I forgot about that. Maybe. Well, and also you have many guided meditations online that people can check out. I do. Um, well, you know the uh, what the first time you made me. Cry. But I will. I'll, I'll tell you the root of one meditation that I love to do, that Great. might help people because it helped me, um, in many times. And it's a meditation um, I know that Sounds True has it in um, this series of uh, meditations for difficult times. And I did a book called A Lamp in the Darkness, Practices for Hard Times, um, in which you envision or remember yourself in the middle of your difficulty at work or family or whatever. Um, and then you let this surprise visit of some enlightened or awakened or loving being come and take your place and it might be Gandhi or the Buddha or Mother Mary or Solomon or you know sometimes it's Yoda or the you know the Dalai Lama or whoever it happens to be your grandmother and let them show you they take over your body so no one knows they're in there and they show you how they would do it and I know that for example uh, you know in the worst difficulties of these last years um, I got divorced 
which I had no expectation was going to happen. I thought I'd be married for the rest of my life and was married for 30 years, have a beautiful daughter and so forth. But at some point, um, after all these years, it became clear to my wife or my ex-wife that she really wanted her own life, that we had different desires, and she wanted her own space and to live her own life after our child was born, I mean, was gone, finished college and, and so forth. And... Um, that was tremendous grief and loss and uh, a kind of agony at times um, for all what I had hold, held on to. Um, so I had to work with that as my practice. But then when we would go in to the lawyers for negotiations, so there'd be a lot of emotion, which is hard. Every, you know, half the people in the country have been through it. So it's not like it's just Jack's thing. All right. Oh, spiritual teacher, you shouldn't get divorced. Yeah. You know, things happen to us. It's just this is the way life is. And it, the waves come and you have to surf them. But I would put Buddha on one arm for calm and clarity and steadiness. And I'd put the Bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin, on my other arm to keep my heart open. I'd say, all right, we're going to do this together. Wow. And it made a complete difference. It wasn't just me, but it was as if those that imagination invited um, the wisest beings uh, or maybe simply the wisest part of consciousness itself to appear. Um, and then it made it all easier. It made it all because the thing is that you who are listening, you know, your heart really knows what's wise. You know what's beautiful, what's compassionate. We forget it. We get lost. We get triggered. We get terrified. We get frightened. All those things, which are also part of being human, but deep down inside is the one who knows, and this is a way of inviting them. So I'm describing the practice, and then it's much cooler when you do it as a meditation. And sounds true has it, or it's in that book. Is you that, are that good enough? Yeah, well, yeah, and I'll tell you why it's really wild. Uh, so I, while I was on the road. I, Someone gave me this stack of graphic novels written by an artist by the name of Alan Moore. And uh, have you ever heard of him before? So he is a practitioner of something called chaos magic. And so they, when he talks about when he makes these comics, he says they're not just comics. They're actually a form of incantation or sigil magic that he's encoded them with his own magical form. And the story in, in these series of graphic novels, and it's awful that I can't remember the name, but I did just start it, is the, the main character. Really, I just read this last night, so it's wild listening to you say this. The main character finds out that, well, she begins researching this mythological goddess figure. And as she's researching this mythological goddess figure, she goes to interview someone who, whose uh, husband, who's passed, has, was one of the main researchers in this person. Anyway, what she ends up finding out is that this mythological goddess creature lives in the realm of stories. And that by writing, uh, that by writing a poem in which you are that person... I am this person. I am the goddess. It the being enters you, and mm -hmm. and that's the superhero in this figure in the in this story. It's just what you're saying. It's someone who's taken this energy, this energetic field, and allowed it to possess them, and is then embodying it in the world. So it's pretty wild because what you just described is what is known as chaos magic, which is that you don't just need to use the symbols of. Uh, the Buddha or Ganesh or any of any of the known symbols. You can use symbols from myth. You could use symbols. Well, they're from... all parts of the great human myth, and the human psyche is mythological. And you know that line from the poet Muriel Ruckhauser: "The universe is made of stories, not atoms." Yeah. Our consciousness creates the world that we know through the stories that we tell. And those are archetypal stories. They're amazing images, whether it's gods or goddesses or, or other archetypes. And by envisioning and imagining them, we actually bring them alive in our spirit, in our heart. Are they alive outside of our heart? Are they? Are, do you, do, are you alive outside of your heart? I hope so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's an impossible. I don't know. Exactly. Well, that's the, now you've given the answer. And this great Zen mm. master that I used to study with... Uh, De Sansanim, De Sungsan, um, used to say, he would look at us and he'd say, what is consciousness? I don't know. I mean, how do you, it's such an amazing, what is love? 
I feel it. I know it. I bet. Well, I don't know. What will happen? You know, when you die? Well, I'm not really sure. What's going to happen next year? Don't know. Um, and he'd say, Ah, oh, you keep don't know. Keep don't know mind. Don't know mind is the mind that's open to the mystery rather than thinking that you understand it. So, is it inside or is it outside? Is anything inside or outside? Now we're getting a little woo-woo, which yeah. is really great. In fact, it's all woven together in consciousness. So are there spirits and mythological beings and so forth? Could be. I used to not believe in anything. I remember when I was a young man and I went to live in this wild forest monasteries on the border of Thailand and Laos in the 1960s. And in those cultures, in Thai and Burmese culture, there's lots of ghost stories. And they're really afraid of, in Burma, it's called the gnats. And in Thailand, it's the pee. And they're, they're, they terrify you um, because they're these roaming spirits of people who died and things like that. And, you know, and I'm as a smart-ass young, you know, Ivy League graduate. And, I'm, okay, I'm learning a lot in meditation. All kinds of wild things like psychedelic stuff is happening. And they say, but don't go near the charnel ground because the ghosts will get you. Mm. And I say, show me, dude. I'm going to go. I want to see the damn ghosts. So I went out there, you know, and they say, he's going to go look for the ghosts in the middle of the night. You know, come on. What happened? Well, the ghosts didn't appear. But that doesn't mean that there aren't spirits. So a story, there's, I could tell you so many stories. This is not exactly a ghost story, but it's a segue back to it. Love it. Um, 30 years ago, I'm traveling in India with my ex-wife. Um, she was, at that time, she was still my, she was my girlfriend. It was before I was married. And we're up in the, in the mountains in India studying with this wonderful guru, Vimala Thakkar, who was a Krishnaburti person. And all of a sudden, in meditations, um, my ex uh, realizes um, she has this cold vision of death. And um, then she sees somebody that she knows dying in this particular way. And then she goes, oh, my dear, you know, it's in my family and all this stuff. And this was before email and stuff like that. And I tried to be reassuring because I was already a meditation teacher. And I said, when you open your psyche, you find everything. You find joy and sorrow. You find the demons and the dragons and, you know, the celestial beings. And all those channels are available because that's part of consciousness. I said, so don't worry about it. You're letting go of things. And as you do, you feel like you're dying sometimes. And that's natural. I was wrong. And 10 days later, we got a telegram that said... Your brother has died of suicide. She knew exactly how he died. And then we looked and saw the date on the telegram was the day that she'd had that vision. Wow. Now, everybody's heard these stories. It's not like a new story. And I've had other experiences quite like that myself. Um, do you know why? Because they're true. Because right. consciousness is not limited to the locality of this, you know, neat body that has had a certain number of um, Big Macs and, you know, broccoli or something. Right. It's not your broccoli and Big Mac body or whatever you happen to eat. Right. Consciousness inhabits this body, but it's also connected to the field. It is the field of consciousness itself. So then you say, could there be spirits that are in bodies and those that aren't? Why not? I used to not believe in anything. Um, when I was young, going in the charnel grounds. Now I tend to believe in everything. Wow. You know, that opens up an interesting topic for discussion, though, because we have... So you have in um, the great world religions, Yes, all of them do mention these extra-dimensional beings. They in do. Christianity, they're called angels. Uh, I guess in Buddhism, what are they called? Devas? Or is yeah, that... it's a word for angel, exactly. Angel uh, in... in, in uh, in in uh, Islam, we call them jinn. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm not sure what they are in Taoism, mm -hmm. uh, but what do they call them on Wall Street? <laughs> <laughs> I guess stock market numbers, or I don't know what the name is. But the the and and you know when when people take ayahuasca, uh, they have these experiences where they come into contact with, or when someone smokes dimethyltryptamine, they come into contact with these extra extra dimensional entities and this is something that I'm curious about because in 
I, as much as I, I love Buddhism and now feel that there's, I don't think that, I, I think that, I know that we're not, well, as you have said many times, which I love, be the Buddha, don't be a Buddhist. I think if someone did say to me, what's your religion? Probably the quick answer would be, oh, it's probably Buddhism. I'd say that. Mm-hmm. But I love uh, Aleister Crowley and I love uh, reading like the about... dark side, yeah. It's cool, man. I love reading about that stuff. And... Uh, Wicca, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a religion. All of the, a lot of these religions do involve contacting these spirits. Well, so do, I mean, there's the oracles in Tibet, and there are, you know, there are all these rituals for for um, making offerings for spirit across Burma and Japan and and Thailand and so forth um, for the spirits of those who are dead or for you know the the hungry ghosts, the realm of, you know, the hungry ghosts. And so these are literal realms. If you want to visit, you know, the the realm of um, the hell realms, you well, probably right now you could go to Syria and you right. would find the hell realm. If, right. you want, if you want the realm of the jealous gods, then you could go to Washington, D.C. and go to Congress and just see everybody fighting over power or whatever wow. it is. If you want the hungry ghosts, you go to Las Vegas and see people all night long, you know, insatiable. Wow. Um, but they also may very well, as we're talking, rep- because they're archetypal, they represent a dimension of consciousness. So all all possible. Ooh, that's scary. See, that's scary because, you know, there is something I, I was at a... Because friend- you want it to be material and everything is just what you see. When you sit next to somebody, uh, if you have the privilege of sitting next to somebody who's dying, especially a conscious death, which is this amazing kind of mystery... Just like you're there and the privilege of being there when somebody's being born at this birth. Yes. And you go, wow, human incarnation. This person just popped out and they're saying, hey, I'm here. I don't know where, quite where I came from. Yes. You know, or they're there with that person dying. Um, and there's the last words or the last look or something. You hold their hand. You chant a little whatever I might do. And then it's as if you almost can sense their body turning into just flesh or meat. And the spirit which had come into the body long ago leaves the body. Yes. Um, what is that, Duncan? I mean, how did you get in this weird thing with a hole in one end which you do- stuff dead plants and animals every day and move it around? Um, so to think that to be scared by spirit, spirit is what you are. Right. You are the, you know, you're the ghost. Hopefully you're not the hungry ghost. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, on a, on a certain day. Yeah. yeah so, sure. so, of course, it's not scary. It's the nature of consciousness itself to have these different dimensions. You, um, so this thing that you're talking about when you're around someone being born or someone dying, hmm. I, I, you know, I, uh, I can remember being around... Uh, I, I, many, many years ago, I made this mistake of uh, volunteering to work at a hospice before I think I, I didn't even know what I was getting into. It just mm. seemed kind of romantic or cool, but I didn't, I didn't, and they talk, you know, there's a, a, a training for it, but then nothing prepared me for being around a dying person. Nothing, I think that was probably if there was ever any chance of me being a, an, what what would be called an atheist or a materialist that was the end of it being around a dying person because what you're talking about mm-hmm. uh, this this woman who was dying with all of alzheimer's on her last uh day on earth i was sitting with her and uh you could you know she was asleep but you could see that part of the body struggle that was resistance that knew that it was it's some whatever the built-in thing the that body we, doesn't want to die doesn't want right. to die that's right and you could see her sort of as she was drifting backwards into death mm. the the colors in the room would brighten it was everything got brighter like something was coming out of her there was a, everything brightened and brightened and brightened and then she would struggle and the it was like whatever that was got sucked back for a second I don't know what that was. It was she was in labor. She was giving birth to spirit out of the body, and wow. it goes in and out. It was like contractions. And I was sitting with a a dear friend, Marlene Jones, who was also a teacher at Spirit Rock, and she um, had had uh, heart failure. Um, she was in her mid sixties or early sixties, um, and it took the paramedics fifteen minutes to get there. So by the time they got her to the hospital, she'd been brain dead for a while. They iced her down and 
then for a couple of days and mm-hmm. brought her out and she was in a coma and all, all, all the machines. And then for a number of days, they tried to get some response by words, by talking, by touch. They, you know, did brain scans, nothing flatlined, um, you know, because her heart had stopped for so long, her brain didn't get oxygen and it was really, she was unable to be revived. So she's there and finally her daughter, beautiful, wise daughter was there and I'm with the daughter and family and people and with the doctors and decided collectively time to take her off the machines. She wouldn't want to just lie there in coma. So we take her off the machines and I'm holding her hand, you know, and knowing that it might just be not many minutes or an hour, it's not short. And I say, Marlene, you know, it's too soon. You know, I loved you. We all loved you. And you had so many gifts to bring and that you could have brought to us more. And it's, you know, and I'm so sorry you're leaving. And I said, but the least you could do is like give us a sign, right? And whatever. And the minute I said that, two tears rolled down her cheeks, you know. So, and this is not an uncommon thing to talk to people, even in profound coma, where it seems like it's impossible to reach them. And then sometimes you realize, oh no, spirit, which is about to leave the body, and she died not that long afterward. Spirit is listening, you know. Mm. Anyway, so this is really who we are. Now, you you were talking about... Um, this kind of mystery of talking to spirits. Do you know the book, The Wizard of the Upper Amazon? Did you ever read it no. or ever hear of it? Um, it? It was by a book by Manuel Cordoba Rios. Um, and his father was Brazilian and worked for a mining or an oil company. I think this was back in the 30s or 40s. Um, and they were going in the upper Amazon exploring with a party from the company to look for where they were going to do mining or oil drilling or something. And a tribe way deep in there that had very little contact with the modern world stole this 12, 13-year-old boy from the party. This was Manuel Cardoberias and brought him deep in the jungle and they couldn't ever find him. Meanwhile, he was taken in, maybe he was 14 or 15, I forget the age, because they realized that they needed someone who could speak the other language to to translate for them and to protect them from the encroachment of the, you know, of the modern world. And they decided to train him as a chief and as a shaman. And he lived with them for 10 years, and their shaman took him out into the jungle um, and gave him ayahuasca and s- some of their vision substances. And he said, all of a sudden, the jungle began to teach me. It wasn't just ghosts or spirits mm. of those kind, but the plants spoke to me, and they told me what they were good for and what their medicine and who they were related to. Um, I would, I guess I'll ruin the story, but it's still totally worth reading. Yeah. Um, at some point later on, he finds himself, I won't tell how it happens, back in the capital in Brazil, no longer no longer the um, living with the tribe. I won't tell how that happens. Um, but he became probably the greatest uh, expert in the botanicals of the jungle wow. in all of Brazil because he had not only been trained by these shamans who lived here, but he'd been trained by the plants themselves. Wow. So we're talking about the fact that you know, we drive down the street in our car and we go to the Safeway market or whatever and everything seems quite material, but it is such a mystery. Such how a mystery. does a seed, how does a kernel of wheat grow from this dry soil and sunlight by turned, yes, by, by chlorophyll into sugar and, you know, but how does it, what is sunlight? You know, what is light? And you are made of light because you eat that wheat and you've got the sunlight in you. And this is an insane thing. We are, we are consciousness then embodied in physical incarnation, and it's fantastic. And so what were you asking? I forget. Oh, it doesn't matter. That's beautiful. <laughs> and But this thing that you're talking about is, and, and, and I do believe We it. are luminous beings, anyway. We are light. And, you know, I just had this wonderful... And when you're there with people who die, sometimes I was just with a woman who said, I'm, I'm ready to graduate. I mean, this was a really, really remarkable woman. She had a, an artist with a huge heart, and she'd done a lot of living in, you know, in Africa and in the Amazon with various tribal people and just had this 
very deep spiritual life and she said I've had this great life now the cancer's filled my body and I'm re ready to graduate I know as I have I've had all these out-of-the-body experiences dissolve my body into light and she said I know who I am is not this body and it was a great ride and I'm ready to graduate that's an extraordinary thing to have a human being that conscious be able to say that because our culture is so afraid terrified or we were in Bali, Trudy and I, my beloved Trudy Goodman, who runs Inside LA. And um, we were traveling in Bali last couple of summers ago. Um, and a friend of ours, who's a Balinese princess, she was actually born in the US, but married a Balinese prince and has lived there for, it's got a bunch of kids and lived there for 30 years. And she took us to a remote village where um, they were doing a big Balinese cremation. And they built this huge kind of paper mache cremation tower where they're going to put the body. And there was this old woman who had died in the village. And they were playing gamelan music and dancing and celebrating and great food. And they were writing and making these beautiful prayers on leaves and piling them up around her body. Um, it was this gorgeous ceremony. Um, and I asked, why aren't people crying? Why aren't they grieving? They said, we cried a little bit, but she's an older woman. We knew it was going to happen. She was sick, you know. Um, so we grieved a little bit. This was like four days after she died. But beside, um, she's coming back next year in the village next door, so why should we make a fuss about it? Wow. And they all felt that. So it was it was a completely different take on our human life. It's so civilized and so beautiful. And and, and, and some, maybe true, Duncan. It could happen. I feel like, well, you know, here, I don't know if you've heard about this or not, but um, did you hear about this, the uh, epigenetics research that has just happened where they exposed mice to the smell of cherry blossoms while, did you hear about this? So they expose mice to the smell of cherry blossoms while giving, it's an awful experiment, while giving them electric shocks. Mm. And uh, the the mice have children, mm -hmm. and the children are afraid of cherry blossoms. Yes, yes. So this is a this one of the uh, somebody who used to promote this idea that these kinds of memories are being transmitted chromosomally or in some deep quantum chemical way uh, that we aren't even aware of yet. This used to be this idea was derided by people. Of course. Considered now it's true. And if you're the children of Holocaust survivors, there's an epigenetic change and you carry that in your body or whatever the trauma of your ancestors, but also the successes you you know, the ancestors have your back. They survived. The reason you're here is because somehow, no matter what happened, yes. they figured out how to survive. So you have these survival genes in you, yeah. and everybody is meant to survive. Your ancestors are cheering for you. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And I, I, the, and so these studies emerged. Yeah. Now, when they emerge, I get really excited and... Uh, happy and then I get mad because I think about the times that I'm around people. I was just at a, a a small gathering of friends and I started mentioning this idea that they taught me in the hospice, which is that when you die, uh, the life review is not like watching a movie, but you literally experience all the pain or all the happiness that you caused in the world, you feel it all. Now, whether or not this is true, I don't know. But I, you know, I was just throwing it out there. It's a fun ball to knock around. And there's a skeptic in the room. And I didn't realize he was like a hardcore skeptic. And he's like, well, that is absolutely preposterous and ridiculous. And I think about the epigenetics person, you know, not that I'm comparing myself to some genius Ivy League person, but the same thing. He must have been getting the same thing. And I think about these people like Dawkins and these people who have managed to put their heel as hard as they can down on this hose that if you open it up, the life energy comes pouring out and the access that you can have the moment you loosen up that skeptical, doubting uh, mind, it really pisses me off, Jack, because I... You know, people are skeptics. I mean, the mandala of human experience, some people are true believers, some are fundamentalists, some are skeptics. Skeptics are, fundam are materialist fundamentalists. It's different kinds, and we love to have our beliefs and cling to them. Um, the, the Buddhist teachings are that the more you cling to your beliefs, actually, the more suffering you make for yourself and others. Mm. Or it's said in the Tao to... The philosopher is wedded to his opponent. Um, there's a line from the Buddha where he says, and those who cling to their 
their beliefs wander around the world annoying people. So that's, I mean, that's, it's like the Buddha's making a joke at some point. It's really great. Um, So I'm sitting with my dad when he was dying. um, And I had a really, I had a difficult father. He was um, really smart, brilliant maybe, um, biophysicist who designed artificial hearts and lungs and worked for the space medicine program, but also worked for the army doing biological warfare, all kinds of stuff. But he was an abusive, paranoid person who beat my mother terribly and was just horrible, you know, um, fits of rage and volatile and things like that. So we had a, a, a tough family life and so forth. I worked it through over the years of my meditation and spiritual practice and therapy and all those kinds of things. So, I mean, he was my father and he had some gifts and I got certain great things from him and I loved him, even though, you know, he was so difficult. Anyway, I'm in the hospital with him and he's 75 years old and he's dying of congestive heart failure. Mm. And they'd done a heart surgery, but, you know, after a while it wore out or whatever. And he's terrified. And I sit there with him during the day and then it comes late at night and I've been there for 14 hours and I say, all right, it's midnight, I'm gonna go sleep. And he says, please don't leave, please don't leave. And he keeps uh-huh. looking over at the monitor to see if he's died yet, wow. you know, cause he invented a lot of these machines and he's watching his pulse and watching all these things. And, you know, he's afraid he's gonna die and no one will know. And so I say, what do you think happens when you die, dad? And he says, nothing. You go back to dirt, nothing, emptiness. So cause he's a materialist like yes. Dawkins or us, that's it. Okay. Well, that's an interesting belief. It's possible, I say. But on the other hand, I said, I want to just tell you a few things. All around the world, culture after culture, people not only believe that there's life, that spirit is more than just the body, but they have all kinds of reports. And, you know, whether it's Africa or, or the tribes in Latin America or the yogis in India, the same kind of stories. And I said, so the majority of people in the world believe it or have had experiences. And I said, let me tell you, meditating, I've had out-of-the-body experiences where I see my body there and I can look out the window, see other things. You know, I've had memories of past lives and these kind of other incarnations. And, and when you die, what happens is, quite likely, Dad, is that your spirit starts to leave your body, you know, when it's... And you float out and there's a sense of luminosity and light and there's a tremendous joy because you're liberated from the body that's in, been in fear and pain, um, you know, and then there's the, there's the next adventure, if you will, for your spirit. Um, but this is, this is likely what's actually going to happen to you, even though you think it's not going to happen. Um, I'm just giving you a little heads up. Um, and he would hold my hand and say, please don't go. I'll say, I'll stay with you. So I'll stay with you. We never held hands since I was a little boy, but, you know, please don't go. All right, I'll stay. And then I said, Dad, one more thing. If it happens, remember, I told you so. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. So, you know, um, people believe what they believe. We have all ways of being attached to our belief. But when you die... And people know it. You 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 be in a car accident, and there you are, and your body's on the street, you know, and the ambulances are coming, and you're floating above your body, saying, sure. "Wow, look at this! Look what happened sure. to me." And then the life review is, "Oh, wow! What an amazing incarnation! Yes, I had these joys and sorrows, and now that dance is over. I remember these pieces, and and now the next thing." Are there things that you know that you don't talk about are there things are there, do you have secrets when it comes to this stuff that you don't rev, that you don't that you don't leave in or you you don't talk about because maybe the people you're talking to aren't quite ready yet or is is there a is you there know that the in the in the tradition where I trained in Thailand and Burma and India and so forth the buddhist teachings are called the teachings of the open hand mm. um where things aren't kept secret and the Buddha said, there are all kinds of spiritual teachers that have all these secrets. He said, I want to lay it out so you can be like me. I don't want to be, oh, if only, you know, the great magician were there. You can awaken to your own Buddha nature. And I'm going to just put it out, put it all on the table for you to take. Um, so I don't 
hide things back. It's different audiences. If I'm talking to a, you know a room of scientists, um, I'll speak a certain way. If I'm talking right. to a room of religious you know figures, I might talk differently. Or to to you know I'm going in Silicon Valley and talking to techies. Um, I tell the stories that I think are will actually touch those people because stories are a way of. Um, isn't this a weird thing, Duncan? Here we are, you know, huffing the atmosphere of the air that just blew across the Pacific Ocean through our lungs, yes. tightening our throat muscles in certain ways and shaping our mouth so that I can say to you, Eiffel Tower, Paris, <laughs> and it, the, the vibrations in the air that we can measure ring the little drum in your ear. Yes. And change the sodium potassium balance that go oh. in the nerve to the auditory nervous system, and you can picture the Eiffel Tower. No one knows how that happens. Right. Well, how the how consciousness sees the Eiffel Tower from those electrochemical signals. No one knows that. Right. It is so. We're talking about mystery, and when I talk to people, the ground underneath is that we're all resting in mystery of the human incarnation, mm. um, and that uh, the point isn't to to solve the mystery but to be aware of it to to honor it in some way and to live with a with a tender and appreciative heart to the to the life that we've been given and yes you're going to have your sufferings part of human incarnation anybody not have pain anybody not have loss anybody not have death in their life coming or or around them no you you take the ticket the e-ticket it used to be at disneyland for the you know the the yeah. high-end ride. You got the the human incarnation ticket, and you get joy and sorrow, and you get pain and you know warfare and terrible things, and you also get magnificence, unbearable beauty and love and creativity, and you get it all. Speaking of unbearable beauty, I want to talk to you a little bit about psychedelics and the research that's coming out uh, right now in relation to psychedelics because people have started. Uh, looking into them again. And of course, what's coming out is what many of us already knew, which is these seem to be incredibly beneficial when it comes to uh, a lot of different things, treating PTSD, quitting smoking, uh, people who are uh, dying and overcoming their fear of death. And some of my favorite meditations, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite meditation sessions, but some of my favorite meditations that I've ever had have been on mushrooms. When I've taken mushrooms and I'm sitting and feeling whatever that is, whatever that experience is, and watching that, how does Buddhism look at uh, psychedelics? And what what is the general thought when it comes to combining meditation with the psychedelic state? I've written about this every chapter in my book, Bringing Home the Dharma. Buddhism doesn't talk directly about psychedelics, unlike Hinduism, in which in the Vedas there's a lot of writing about soma, about this magic psychedelic substance. No one knows quite whether it was a mushroom or a vine that people would take to have visions, or you can see to this day um, sadhus and yogis sitting on the banks of the Ganges in Benares smoking hashish or chillam and, you know, using that to enhance their sense of connection with the gods and so forth. Buddhism doesn't talk about psychedelics. It talks simply about intoxication. It says that you can misuse intoxicants to escape. You can misuse them to get intoxicated in a way that then you don't, you don't stay true to your best values, you know. So we have 20 million alcoholics and 10 million drug addicts and millions of people who suffer in their families and communities from it. So it says be really careful with these things. And we live in America where we both have the opportunity to use all kinds of things, but we're also good at misusing things. Anything we have, we also learn Mm -hmm. to misuse in some way. That's right. So this is the caveat um, that these are really potent substances, whether it's you know, psilocybin or ayahuasca or or LSD and so forth. Um, and they can open consciousness in remarkable ways. And Andy Weil, the great, you know, physician who emphasizes the kind of natural way of looking at medicine that written all kinds of bestsellers and so forth, he wrote a wonderful book about um, how every cult, major culture in the world has ways of altering consciousness and yes. substances that they use. So it's part of our, it's sort of built into being a human being since our 
ancestors' time, that whether it's coffee or quat or or you know ayahuasca or or whatever, we're we're using substances to alter or open our consciousness. And then do we use them in a skillful and health, healthy way? Or do we use them in either deluded or or self-destructive ways? Because they can be destructive. And it turns out that these very powerful substances like psilocybin, which is now being researched again, or I remember because one of my closest friends is Stan Groff, a physician, okay. MD, PhD, who ran the last legitimate LSD research at yes. Johns Hopkins in the 1960s. Um, and I remember seeing the videotapes of his sessions with people who were dying. This coal miner guy from West Virginia who'd come into Johns Hopkins with cancer, you know, and couldn't talk very well and then was given this LSD session with blindfolds over his eyes and beautiful music in his ears for eight hours, people tending him and so forth. And he takes off his blindfold near the end of the session. He says, I saw God. I saw God. I'm not afraid to die. And now I know who I am. And, you know, he's kind of, and he says it in his West Virginia coal miner's voice. Wow. Um, but his eyes were shining in a way. And when the session had started, this was a man in pain and in terror. Wow. So they can be, if they're used in a wise and proper way, for, for, for some people, they can be a gateway to a very deep understanding. And, you know, half the great Dharma teachers of this last set of generations in the West, starting with Ramdas, who was before that Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary. Yes. But many, many others I know um, had a start with or early on um, used psychedelics as a way to open their minds and their hearts. But then they realized that if, if you want to embody it and you want to live it, you have to find a spiritual practice a spiritual discipline a way of actually bringing it alive here and now and the beautiful thing is that that's possible when was your last psychedelic trip um some years ago ah uh, the ambiguity says everything it's yeah. awesome i don't have to include that question by yeah, the way you can include it if you want that's um uh, that's amazing that you I, were hanging out with Groff. I didn't know that. Uh, and that means that you had access to the m most potent LSD that, that... There isn't the most potent. There's either pure LSD or it's adulterated. But you had that. I've, I've, in other ways, I've had access to very good substances, yes. And was this your start? Was, was No, you... heavens no. This was no. after. I was, listen, no, I remember I, I studied... Um, First, I was doing pre-med at Dartmouth, and then I switched to doing Asian studies because, I, I, you know, the sciences, my, fa my family, my father was the scientist. I needed something more. I needed how to deal with my rage and, and my grief and all the trauma from my childhood. I also didn't, you know, I felt geeky and awkward and, you know, self-conscious as a young man, and I didn't know how to make a good relationship. I didn't know how to guide myself. My social and emotional skills were not very, <laughs> were, were not very good. Yes. Um, and so when I started to hear the teachings of the Tao, and I started to hear the Buddhist teachings that there's suffering and it has its causes of, you know, aggression and hatred and, and, and um, grasping, but there's an end to suffering. There's a way that you can transform this and release yourself from the sorrows of, of the past and live with a compassionate open heart. I said, I need this. So I, so I went to the monastery. Um, uh, but on the way, <laughs> I hitchhiked to California um, in the middle of being at Dartmouth because it was the 60s. And, you know, I was in San Francisco for the summer of love and wow. hate Ashbury, you know. Um, and so uh, that had a big influence on my life. Yeah, that's uh, um, I'm really excited uh, about the time period that we live in because what you didn't have during the summer of love was the internet, and what you didn't have during the summer of love was the Jack Cornfield now being broadcast through the inter internet to combine with the psychedelics, and it's something that I'm just I'm very interested in, and I, I the I know that the story goes like this: we take the psychedelic. Then we get into Buddhism and we don't do the psychedelic anymore. But I sometimes think, 
Why do we stop taking the psychedelic? Why can't the two have a wonderful relationship together? Not in an addictive way. And anyone who's taken any psychedelic knows that there's very little escape happening when, when you're on these substances. They're not physically addictive. And uh, the studies are showing that people who do them tend to peter out. I know I did. When I first started doing LSD, I was doing it all the time. Now, I, I mean, once a year, twice a year. I don't do them all the time, but I love to combine the two. And so it's just an it's a beautiful thing to be able to bring um, your spiritual practice and discipline back to the psychedelics. Because then, then in some way you're able to take the lessons, navigate the amazing spaces that they open with more mindfulness and more compassion. That's it. So that, you know, that becomes a way that the two can, can support one another. And then it doesn't become, oh, I'm tripping all the time, but rather once in a while it feels like, oh, um, maybe I'm going to use these spiritual tools in the, in, um, and, and use this other psychedelic way of exploring. And some people do that. Thank you. One, one last question, if yeah. we could. Uh, for the people listening, uh, I, I like asking this sometimes. What is? Can you give us some homework? Can you give us something that uh, we can do this week or today or right now uh, to, to get deeper into the Dharma, to open ourselves up more? Can you give us a task that we could try? Uh, I, I used to do these... Uh, what I call them, freak out challenges where I would say, tell people, oh, go give a flower to a stranger and see what happens. Or it's fun to do these little tasks. Can you give us one of these tasks to do for this so week? So I have a little story to read and then I'll think of a task to Great. give. The story goes like this. It's a Hasidic um, Jewish mystical rabbi um, who taught his disciples to memorize, reflect, contemplate, and place the teachings of the holy words on their heart. One day, a student asked the rabbi why he always used the phrase, on your heart. And the master replied, only God or the mystery can put the teachings in your heart. Here, we recite and learn and put them on the heart, hoping that someday, when your heart breaks, they will fall in. I love that. And so when you ask about a practice, in a way, both there is something beautiful in a practice, but also it prepares us for the moments when the heart breaks and we lose something or when the mystery throws us into some great difficulty, which will happen in everybody's life. Um, then we have those, those resources, the holiness inside us that says, yes, we know how to do this. And we do know the Buddha nature in us says, I know how to bring compassion and wisdom and understanding to this very difficulty. Um, and so the practice I would give is a simple one of intention, or you could call it best intention or sacred intention. And that is um, three times today or tomorrow, um, when you notice yourself in conflict with another person or upset with what's happening, um, particularly in relation to other people or events around you, Take a little pause and then ask yourself, what's my best intention? What's my highest intention? And when you do, just to, to take that breath of a pause, you step out of the conflict and you're upset and you're angry and you're you know, worried and all the things that come activated in you or you feel guilty or bad or, or you, know, um, you know, blaming or whatever. And you take a pause. First, you start to sense the there comes the perfume of freedom. Oh my God, I'm not completely lost in that. I'm not totally insane for a moment. I'm, I've got some space. And then you say, what's my best intention? And often when you think about going back to the people or the situation or that purpose, something comes in your heart and say, you know, I want us to understand each other. I want us to somehow work this out. I, I actually love these people maybe, or I want, you know, some... The beauty of your own heart when you have a conversation with it and you're willing to take time to listen starts to reveal itself. Um, and that's what meditation is about. It's not to make you a better person. Um, it, um, it's to allow you to listen to the, the goodness and the, 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 the kind of depth of compassion 
that is innate to you as a being. You don't really want to suffer. And, you know, when you were a child, you wanted to be free. There's this sense of newness and freedom of spirit. And, and, and you want that for others. And I see it in children. Even all these little experiments where, where children will help one another. Yes, they hit each other with blocks and things when they get frustrated because they don't have the tools yet. Of course, nations do that too, unfortunately. Yeah. Use your words. But underneath, you have a, a tender and wise heart. And this is your true, it was born into you, your spirit. And so when you take a moment to quiet and say, what's my best intention? Wait, you'll be surprised at how often a beautiful answer will come. It's great. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you for your time. It's so, so cool that you spend this time. Duncan, uh, it's a pleasure. Okay. I hope this is um, of service to the people who listen. Hi out there. And um, hi, Mom. She's actually died, so I'm talking to her spirit, but you know how they do it on television. Yeah. <laughs> hi, Mom and Dad. Um, yeah, wherever you are, Mom, and wherever everybody's mom is, and whether they were, you know, the best moms or difficult moms, still we make a bow to Mother Earth and to all that's bringing life back alive generation after generation. And let's do something cool with it, you know? It's time. Let's do it. I love you, Jack. Thank love you. Love you, Duncan. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support, and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack. Look forward to seeing you next week.